Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Dan Madigan and Dan Connolly. As always, we've got a packed episode, lots to talk about, and an interview with UConn men's hockey head coach Mike Cavanaugh coming up. Uh, so we'll be excited to share that with you. But first, let's talk about the women's basketball team. Since coming out of Thanksgiving break, they had a pretty interesting game at Seton Hall, dealing with some uh, adversity, trailing at the first quarter, after the first quarter, but still ended up getting the win. Then in a highly anticipated game, kind of, against Notre Dame, they uh, absolutely crushed a rebuilding Notre Dame squad, 81-57. Um, I think there's definitely a lot to to unpack with what's going on with the team. But first and foremost, I'd say it's it's Megan Walker, right? I mean, she's been looking absolutely amazing out there, right? Yeah, she's an All-American. There's no question. She's the best player on this team by a pretty clear margin. And really, I don't know how many more players in the country are playing better than her. She's just playing with a different look to her. Like she's aggressive. She just seems to have this confidence that not that she lacked in the past, but it's like when UConn needs a big shot, she gets the ball and then she's going to go take it to the rim and try and stop her. So it's just an evolution in her game that I think we expected to see a little earlier. Obviously she had that fresh, that tough freshman season. And then last year was just a really good piece in a machine that included Katie Lou Samuelson and Nafisa Collier. But Gino's talked a lot about her mental change coming into this off season, her getting into physical shape better. And I think her play is kind of, been a barometer for how UConn plays. She's reached 20 points five times this season, and three of those have come in the last three games. And I don't think it's a coincidence that UConn's been playing its best these last three games. But it's not just that she's doing it with her scoring, she's also been really good with rebounding. She's been giving out assists at consistent numbers. She's just becoming a really, really good all-around player that's becoming extremely difficult for defenses to stop because she's really good at feeling it out on the court of what she needs to do. Like She'll catch the ball, and if the defense gives her a little space, she's going to shoot it. But if they try and come out on her too fast, she's willing to drive it, or she can still pass it out. So she's really just a total threat whenever she touches the ball. And... It's just going to be – this is this is absolutely her team now. I All due respect to Crystal, she's still the floor general. She's the point guard. But this is Megan Walker's team, and I really think it, they're going to go as far as she can take them. Yeah, I think, Dana, I think it is a confidence thing with, with Megan Walker. And I think some of it isn't – you know, it's not all confidence. Some of it's just pressure, uh, knowing that, you know, she, along with, with Dangerfield and Kristen Williams to a degree – uh, and even Olivia Nelson and are, are going to have to be the main scoring options night in and night out. They can't fall back on Katie Lou Samuelson or Nafisha Collier anymore. Right. So uh, I, I think it's just her kind of evolving as a player, uh, getting, you know, getting older, having more experience as, as a, uh, an upperclassman now. So um, it's, it's cool to see her blossom into what I think a lot of people expected her to be from day one. 
Uh, and she's always shown flashes, flashes of it, but never been able to put it together all the way until this season. So, I mean, against Notre Dame, her, you know, mid-range pull-up jumper it looked as smooth as ever. And I think that's, that's a real asset for her. Uh, she's always been, you know, a pretty solid shooter, especially last season. Uh, she shot really well from three, I think almost 50% for a good chunk of the season. So it, it's good to have her going and shooting well. And I think once Dangerfield gets a little bit healthier coming back from back spasms, she's going to be able to contribute a lot more too. And that'll give UConn a, a good tandem uh, heading into conference play and beyond. So the Huskies vaulted their way into number two <clears throat> in the AP poll, which um, maybe we can talk about that and discuss how much we think UConn is the second best team in the country. It's a competitive field out there this year. But something that was really encouraging to me is just handling some adversity. You are uh, on the road, losing after the first quarter, talking about the Seton Hall game. Uh, losing after the first quarter, you've got some key players in foul trouble, and um, you know I think I think obviously Walker has been has been amazing, but I think some other players have really stepped up for for them to uh, you know not just fill in the production that's needed at the top, but also when you think about kind of the middle and the bench. Have we seen um, you know some some people really step up across the rest of the roster as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is definitely a really pretty deep roster. I mean, with the exception of Evelyn Adebayo and Batuli Kamara, who's out with an injury, every single person on this roster has contributed a lot in at least one game this season. If you look at Crystal Dangerfield's injury, Molly Bent started both those games and looked really good just getting it up the court and hanging on to it and not trying to do too much. Kyler Irwin has really quietly been a really, really solid player for UConn with that fifth spot in the lineup kind of fluctuating with injuries with Anna Makarat not performing super well to start her freshman season and also dealing with those injuries. Uh, Kyler Irwin at one point was leading the country in uh, field goal percentage. She's Still shooting 765 from the field, which is really, really good with seven threes. So she's a threat from outside the line. Um, she's shown to be a really good passer, too. That's, I feel like, a really quiet part of her game. The leading passer on the team, surprisingly, is Anna Makarat with 24 assists. And then both Megan Walker and Kristen Williams have 22 assists right now. Kyla Irwin has as many assists as Crystal Dangerfield does with 21 tied with her and Olivia Nelson Adota. And granted, Dan Dangerfield's missed some games, but still, Kyla Irwin's only played in seven games and Crystal's played in six. So it's not like there's a huge disparity between those two. I think it really just shows how well she's playing. And I just think the fact that both her and Irwin are playing really well is just a really nice storyline because for their entire four years, they really haven't had any sort of role outside the last 10 to 12 minutes in blowouts, but they've always been credited with being really good teammates and always working really hard in practice. So I know for Oriyama, he talked about how great it is to see those two having success. And I think it's really just a great boost for everyone in the program. And it's just a testament to 
OREM and his coaching staff's ability to really get the most out of people because these weren't players that were recruited by other Power 5 schools. They were players that Gino saw something in along the lines or one of his coaches saw something in, and now they're finally getting to that point where they can get them to their potential that they've seen all along in them. Dan, I'm, I'm really happy for you. I got to say, I know you've been the, <laughs> the number one Kyla Irwin fan on the internet uh, since, since day one, since she stepped onto campus. And, uh, you know, to your credit, she's really blossomed into a really solid player. She had a big, uh, big charge against Ohio State to help kind of keep the Buckeyes from gaining too much momentum. She's hit timely shots. She can rebound. She can play defense. She does a little bit of everything. I wouldn't say she's great at any one particular thing, but she's good enough to be able to spell multiple players off the bench or to step into the starting lineup from time to time. And that is a huge asset. So uh, I agree. It, it is really cool to see her step up and become a key part of the offense. Um, I, I think it's just one of those things to, that goes to show how selfless, you know, some of these players have to be to play for UConn. Uh, maybe not when, when Kyla came to, to campus, but now she could probably play or, and start for, most schools in the country and uh, instead of, of transferring or, you know, complaining about playing time, she's, you know, put her head down, put some work in and continued to uh, earn a role on the team. So credit to her and Ben. Um, I, like you said, I also think Mockrat's going to be a, a big time player, especially as the, the year goes on, as she gains more experience, gets used to, you know, life in America stateside and, and just college basketball in general. I think she's going to be a really big asset. She's uh, a little slow on defense right now, um, but I think, once she kind of gets used to how the game flows, she's going to be a really dangerous player off the bench or in the starting five. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> players like Bent and Irwin, you just need those types of types of players on the roster. I, I, I always remember something that Gino said. I think it was Molly Bent's freshman year or, or maybe right after she was signed. He said, if I didn't sign her, some mid-major, she was, she was going to beat me in the NCAA tournament on some mid-major team. Uh, and that kind of always stuck with me as as kind of like what what he saw in her. And I think, um, you know, it's a it's a great point that it, the coaching staff deserves a lot of credit for this. You know, a lot of people say, uh, you know, still say who are kind of detractors of UConn and its dominance. They say, oh well, you know, UConn gets the best recruits, blah blah blah. I mean, first of all, that's that's not even true anymore. Um, although the future might suggest otherwise, but you know, that's that's not still a hundred percent true. And then. Uh, the other point is that they find players like this who end up being really key contributors over the course of their career, uh, even if not in a starring role. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's great. And then, you know, the other thing that we got we, ha we have to talk about is how Molly Bent is such a, a fan favorite among the attendees of UConn women's basketball games for some reason. It's, it's honestly nuts. Like, I... I don't think I hear louder cheers at Gample, even in big games, unless Molly Ben's hitting a three or driving to the rim or something. It's, it's unbelievable how she's just like the, the fans just hold her to such a higher level than everyone else on the team. And we know that women's basketball fans love every single player on the team dearly. I mean, just the, reaction she gets when whenever she touches the ball the entire crowd collectively yells at her to shoot it's an incredible phenomenon and one of the last games she drove to the hoop got fouled for an and one 
and I genuinely thought the roof of Gamble was going to collapse. It was that loud. And Yukon was up like 45. It, it, it's incredible. I've never seen it for another player. And I don't know if we're going to see it again for anyone else in the future. I think the people just love Molly Bent. How Molly can you Bent. not love Molly Bent? Molly Bent, the people's champion. So one thing we do have to talk about, I mentioned it earlier, they are now number two in the rankings. Um, I'll just, just throw it out there. Is UConn the second best team in the country right now? No, no, they're not. No, definitely not. But it, it's just been kind of a weird season in women's basketball where the, besides UConn and Stanford and Oregon state, the rest of the teams in the country have all kind of stumbled at one point or another and have lost. And a lot of them have lost to each other. Like, Oregon lost to Louisville and South Carolina beat Baylor, but then those schools have also lost to some lesser tier schools like uh, Louisville lost to Ohio State, which then makes UConn's close win against Ohio State look a lot better. And really, I think it's just kind of a testament to how incredible UConn's not just success is, but how they sustain their success because they're never on a down year. Even in years that UConn fans think they're on a down year like this, this UConn team is still better than probably 90% of the country's best team in program history. And this is like pretty comfortably, n- no uh, disrespect to them, but like pretty comfortably probably one of the lesser talented teams of the decade. And yet it's still just miles above most teams in the country and they never drop off from that you look at notre dame notre dame's not in the top 25 they suck this year they're probably not even going to make the tournament they're that bad and yukon has hasn't missed the tournament in 33 years they're always in the top five they've been in the top five since 2007 they've been ranked since 1993 there's never a day off with UConn. There's never an off game. There's never an off year. They're just always at the top. And if that hasn't been underscored this year, uh, I, I don't know what will. Yeah, 12, 12 straight years in the Final Four um, is, is just absolutely insane, obviously. Um, but yeah, Notre Dame, uh, sorry to see you rebuilding, but could not be us, I guess. Um, no, I mean, I think the other thing with the ranking is just it's clearly a wide open year for uh, for women's basketball. And so when we were talking about before the season, how just the mere fact that UConn's not clearly number one, clearly the best in the country, um, let's all start to temper our postseason expectations. But I think everything is still very much on the table, right? Like the, you know, they still can win the championship. They have a very good shot at the final four uh, and, and, and keeping that streak alive. So, um, a lot to keep an eye on. Yeah, Aman, I, I was looking at uh, her hoop stats, trying trying to get an analytics based answer to this uh, to to the question, and I think kind of Dan, what you said, it paints a, the best picture, right? Where some of these top teams, they are most likely better than UConn, and at their peak might be better than UConn, uh, but have stumbled. But looking through uh, her hoop stats, has UConn fifth according to their her hoop stats rating. So uh, they have Baylor, Oregon, Mississippi State, and Maryland ahead of them. 
and all those are pretty fair. Um, personally, I, I think Oregon is still the, the team to beat when it comes to March and April, but uh, there's plenty of basketball in between, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I think it's going to be really exciting to see those games coming up with Baylor and Oregon. Both of them are going to be at UConn, so that's definitely going to give the edge to UConn. Uh, but just how they match up with those teams, how they can kind of how their players can kind of exploit the weaknesses of the other team or the other way around. I mean, last season, one of UConn's biggest issues was their lack of size, but now with the way Olivia Nelson Adota is playing, I'm not sure there's many teams that can handle her. And she makes a team like Baylor who has a lot of size that much easier to deal with. So I think those games are going to be really, really interesting and it are going to be a really good barometer for kind of where UConn is because they're eight no, but at the same time they haven't played a ranked team yet. So we're gonna see that in DePaul, but UConn always beats DePaul, so that's not really a great test anyways. So I think getting the chance to play those really good teams is gonna be a nice look to see if if this UConn team is actually a true contender or if the other teams kind of have their way with them like Louisville did last year and like Baylor did. Yeah, so Circle your calendars, folks. We've got Oregon coming to Gamble Pavilion on Monday, February 3rd. We'll have Baylor uh, kind of on the horizon, not really, but about a, about a month away. Uh, Thursday, January 9th, that'll be at the Excel Center. And then, yeah, as Connolly mentioned, next game up is December 16th at DePaul. And, yeah, I mean, DePaul's ranked. They typically play UConn pretty close. Trap game. So it'll be a it'll be a good game. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, definitely expect UConn to win. But uh yeah, exciting season shaping up for for Gino and the squad, and we'll make sure to uh keep tabs on that. Um <laughs> we always have to make the ugly transition from good news now when we talk about the basketball teams to the football team. So, uh, Randy Edsel has received pretty much a full vote of confidence from athletic director, David Benedict, uh, you know, as recently as Sunday of this past week. Um, but what has gone down since the end of the season, uh, at least has parts of the fan base, you know, reasonably questioning, uh, what's, what's going on over there. There are currently 17, players with eligibility remaining in the transfer portal. There may be more coming. Um, Notable departures from that list include Tyler Coyle, who is a team captain and a longtime defensive starter, Donovan Williams, who was a captain and a a well-regarded player who who played a lot of different positions for the Huskies and, and including special teams. Um, Taj Herring, a multi-year starter, defensive back, quarterback Mike Beaudry, who was the starter at the beginning of this season. Um, just, just to name a few, uh, I think to also to be losing two guys who are projected to be, were projected to be starting offensive linemen, not great. Um, in a year where, you know, going into Randy Etzel's fourth season, we're talking about actually starting to have real somewhat tangible expectations and expecting to see growth and progress on the field, something that 
was kind of lacking this year. To me, it's starting to bring the likelihood of success of this second Randy Edsel era into question. Um, struggling through the first couple of seasons, at least somewhat understandable. You kind of get a sense for what's going on and, and maybe everyone's still figuring things out, but feels like an, another rash of people leaving another year where you're losing a lot of depth. Um, where are we after, after seeing all that, the, that all these players want to leave UConn? I think I'll buy some of the argument that they weren't his players and they weren't playing going to play anyways to a certain degree because yeah, like losing the backup punter is really not a big deal at all. That doesn't affect anything next year. But then when you're losing guys like Taj Herring Wilson and Tyler Coyle who weren't just going to play big roles on defense, they were probably going to be two of your best defensive players on a defense that needs everything it can, even with some improvement this year. That's where you start to lose me a little bit because that's when I'm not sure how we're going to be making progress if there's guys like that that are leaving. Is there really someone on the roster that with, a full off season between now and next season is going to be able to take a step that makes them equivalent or at least close to where those two players were. And I, I don't really see that. So I think that that's the part that concerns me um, the most is just that the guys that they're losing that they, that actually played, there's no obvious replacements on this roster and, I guess it's just going to be your uh, gut check time for Randy Edsel's recruits because the ones that he inherited and weren't quicker and faster and strong enough uh, to play at a division one level. So I guess it's going to be time to see if the ones he recruited actually are. Yeah. I think it's really bad. Um, just, just not a sign of a program that's being built correctly, I think, and, and trending upward. Um, and if it is, then it's just going really slowly, but um the, I guess the only light at the end of the tunnel is that I think it was Edsel or Benedict was saying that, you know, yes, there's all these transfers, but we have recruits coming in and we didn't really see that for a while. Um, but almost like clockwork after Benedict's press conference on Sunday, I think there was, you know, five or six recruits that announced their commitment that morning. So they're not going to be able to fill all 17 or however many spots there are, but um, if they can at least fill most of them with potential football players, uh, that's a step in the right direction. But it, it's not a good time for UConn football. And moving to independence is definitely a scary thought um, with all of this in mind now. And it's going to be really interesting how these next few years shake out, uh, especially since it seems like we'll have Randy Etzel as the head coach at least through 2021, according to Benedict. So that's pretty interesting um, a long-term commitment from him uh, especially given how bad the team has been honestly the last two years so we'll see how it shakes out so a couple of things on on that so I think the caliber of player I don't think that there's anything that was you know super off on a lot of these guys that are leaving and I don't think there's any potential for character issues or anything like that either so I'm I'm really skeptical about kind of the the Edsel's guys, Diago's guys thing because I think no matter what, there they there are there's a caliber of player that's leaving that no matter what you want on your team, right? Like 
it doesn't really matter who recruited Tyler Coyle. We still want him on the football team. It doesn't matter who recruited Keon Dixon. You know, he's, he's, uh, <laughs> obviously we are, we, we may, we stay Keon Dixon fans for life, but you know, that's, that's a guy who's an incredibly high level athlete who put up number, some decent numbers as a sophomore who, has has everything it takes and and by all accounts is a great kid too you know so i think some of this stuff that that kind of paints it as as like so black and white like that it just kind of obscures the fact that you still want to keep these guys especially in a season where you're trying to um you know it it, it it's something where 2 years ago it's it's fine and and of course every program has a decent amount of turnover on a year by year basis and of course the portal, you know, makes it, makes it easier for kids to explore their options. But um, I just, I, I just don't know about the types of players that are leaving again, multiple projected starters for next year's team. Uh, to me, that is indicative of a problem. And, um, you know, I think we, we kind of heard some other problematic things, you know, once, once this, that first, or I guess it was the second wave of, transfer announcements came last Friday, we started seeing former players on Twitter voice their opinions, uh, players who had graduated, uh, players who ha- who tr- did transfer out. And, um, you know, it's just not a good look. So I, I, we've, we've had a lot of criticisms about what's going on on the field, right? In terms of you're changing your offensive coordinator every year, you are the current offensive coordinator is not doing a great job. Um, what what is the game plan in terms of what you're doing defensively? What's what's the long term vision at at quarterback? All of these things are just kind of not a good look. And then to have this this additional layer of you don't seem to be getting along with players, and and it may or may not be a you know, recruited by the previous guys thing. I think it could be a not fully up with the times thing. And that's something we were kind of always worried about at the start when Randy Edsel was hired. But um, for me, the feeling is we really should, even, even if we go into the Randy Edsel era thinking he's got four or five seasons to do this, we still have the right to question the way a, a lot of things have gone down over these past three but especially the the last season and 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 this past season as well yeah for sure and i we keep mentioning tyler coyle but he's a kid from windsor so the idea that he was a diaco recruit like if he was if edsel was here when that when he was in high school like it would have been a crime to not have gotten that kid to uconn anyways like clearly he was a capable football player at the fbs level local kid like why would you not want that guy on your team and why would you not do everything in your power to try and keep that guy on your team i mean maybe there's a situation where there was nothing edsel could have done to get him to stay here but from from the way the whole situation kind of played out it's kind of hard to believe that that would be a situation that actually happened so i i think it's just frustrating that like how this doesn't look good for recruiting. You need a lot of help recruiting wise. So what's it say if a bunch of these guys want to leave the program, even though they've been playing a lot, which I mean, 
I imagine every kid wants to play when they get to college. And I'd imagine a good percentage would rather play and not be on a great team than not play and be on a good team. Right. So it's definitely not good to see. And it's not what you want going into your first season of football independence. Yeah. So I think, you know, not again, coil is going to probably end up at a power five program. Uh, we saw Tyler Davis end up at Georgia Tech as a as a transfer out again. Great kid, did everything for the team, was a good athlete, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I think another player to kind of highlight here is Donovan Williams. So he's someone who, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, the plan was that he was redshirting and staying at UConn for another year. That was, um, you know, that was kind of something that was announced, and so. For uh, for that to change, not a good look. Uh, we got two more transfers within the past couple of days in running back Dante Black and uh, Xavier Scott, who was a kind of a receiver running back combo. So again, we're we're seeing players leave, um, and there has got to be something more to it than just not getting enough playing time, scheme fit. Um, what have you. And something we should throw out right now is in three seasons under Randy Etzel, he's won six games. And let's say, you know, next year, optimistically, they win even four or five. We're still talking about like 11 or 12 wins in four years while Diaco uh, had gotten to a bowl game in his second year and maybe – um, you know, now we're thinking there could have been a better opportunity at that time if you're course correcting. So a um, lot, lot of questions with the Randy Etzler. And, and I think, again, someone like Donovan Williams can't, can't have a guy like that leaving. And, and what happened that made him uh, change his mind on something like that? That, uh, that article of, about Williams transferring was right all along. It was just two and a half years too early, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing with the whole Edsel Diaco thing, and, and Dan, I know we talked about this before the pod, and, and we can go to war on it right now if you want, but um, just, just a factual thing is I still don't really understand. I, I don't know if this the team last year is going to be any better or worse if Diaco's the head coach. Uh, I just am still confused why Diaco got that extra year, never got that last year. Um, I just feel like Edsel wasn't going anywhere. He he wasn't in danger of being snapped up by, you know, a UMass even, or like a competent football program uh, other than being, you know, an analyst for an NFL team or like, you know, maybe even uh, a, a power five team or something like that. So it's not like Edsel was a hot commodity that needed to get picked up and, you know, right then and there. And I understand that Benedict could see that maybe the ship was sinking and, and wanted to make a change. Um, and, you know, the change did instill a lot of energy in the program, right? There was a, a real palpable buzz around the program for lack of a better term uh, for a decent amount of time before they started playing football again. But I, I just don't understand just given the cost and the fact that Diaco did take this program to a bowl game. Um, that's one of those things that I'll just never understand why there wasn't that extra year, but um it'll be interesting to see what this team looks like under Etzel as it heads into independence and for at least the next two years. Uh, and if, if he wins three or four games this, this coming season and then has a flirts with bowl eligibility 
next, you know, the year after, uh, he'll probably be the UConn football coach for a long time, whether we like it or not. I think Diaco built his the program kind of on a house of cards. I don't think the recruits that were coming in that were going to have any sort of sustain, sustained success. I think we saw that in his last year. The secondary was getting torched because he couldn't recruit any safeties or any cornerbacks that were at a Division One level for those seasons. There was no development going on with those players. The defense was really good early in his years. But there's a reason it really wasn't good that last year. The talent wasn't there. And I think the only reason Diaco didn't get another year is because of the Diaco. I'm pretty sure David Benedict was pretty explicit about it, or at least there was a report that was pretty explicit about it that Diaco refused to even meet with Jerry Kill, the former Rutgers offensive coordinator, for the offensive coordinator job because Diaco had never hired an actual offensive coordinator. And if he wasn't going to go after someone with credentials, someone that knew how to run an offense, someone that had experience doing that, then I think it was pretty obvious that he wasn't attempting to build the program as best as he could. He wasn't interested in being as good as he could. He was just interested in getting his friends jobs and boosting his friends resumes because that's what he did with Frank Verducci that's what he did with. Verdict's still out on David Corley. We still don't know if he's <laughs> going to be good or bad or not. But it like it was going nowhere if he wasn't going to hire an offensive coordinator. I mean, I, I guess we're in the exact same position. What four years later, if Edsel doesn't hire an offensive coordinator, a real offensive coordinator this off season, then what are we doing? Because then it's just a definition of insanity of trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If we keep Frank Jufri next season, the offense is going to be hot garbage like it was this year. If Diaco just brought in one of his boys like coming back next season, then the offense was going to continue being terrible like it was every single season under Bob Diaco. The offense was never good under Bob Diaco. The offense was never even Decent under Bob Diago. Rhett Lashley, granted a really good offensive coordinator, came in with the exact same offense and took it significantly higher than Diaco would have with his wildest dreams. So, look, Bob Diaco was an unbelievable hire for UConn. Getting Notre Dame's defensive coordinator, a Broyles winner, is just mind-blowing for where UConn football is right now. And it didn't work out. He didn't have the temperament to be a head coach. Clearly, he didn't have the leadership qualities. And clearly, he just didn't want to win games because you just cannot have that bad of an offense and then refuse to meet with a good offensive coordinator. I think the thing, yeah, no, I think the thing is, it's not even about is, is Edsel better than Diaco necessarily. The, the point was, we all really disliked Diaco by the end of his time there. We, we felt strongly he was not not the one. Uh, he was making poor leadership decisions uh, in terms of his staff as well as on the field, right? You know, the Navy game stands Navy out game. in particular. Yeah. But, you know, in, just in general, not, not the best in-game manager. Uh, a lot of the same thing that we're mad about with Randy Etzel right now, like the punting in, in enemy territory. Um, but the bigger thing just, you know, is, is that, okay, Diaco was bad and we were ready to move on. Has Randy Edsel 
improved upon it at all after three years? And that to me is the problem. The answer is no. Uh, the answer is that they don't still look anywhere close to, um, you know, being a competitive team. And the the way that you had to completely start over on defense is somewhat on you. Um, and I, again, with all these guys leaving, it's hard to see how it's going to be a noticeably better team next year. And then we're talking about four years without any sort of meaningful progress, lack of competitiveness. Um, just seems like a bad situation. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, I I'm fine with rolling the dice with, with Jufri for a year. Um, Edsel had a, you know, in this second go around as head coach, Edsel had a good run, right. With, with hiring, uh, offensive coordinators between Lashley and Dunn. So, you know, he rolls the dice on Jufri. He sucks. He's been terrible. He was awful uh, by any metric. He's just been terrible. Um, seems like he's a good offensive line coach based on the work that he's done with, with Pert and everyone. Um, but he's just not an offensive coordinator. And I think, you know, I would personally rather be giving flyers to guys who want to prove themselves at the division one level at, offensively whether it's someone like Lashley who was trying to get back in the game after, you know, working at Auburn or John Dunn, who never really held the position before Um, just giving it to young guys who are innovative, want to play the, play the game fast and want to try and see what they can do with, with a college offense when they have control. Um, And if you kind of have to replace them year after year, then so what, Uh, you know, they're going to miss fire on some of them. Um, But it seems like Etzel has a good enough eye for at least, coaching talent offensively where he can bring in people more often than not. Um, so, you know, Jufri sucked this year's over. I'm hoping that there's an announcement soon that he, you know, isn't, he's resigning from those duties and, and sticking to the offensive line. Um, but there's gotta be more, if we're going to be this bad, right. There's gotta be more risk associated with it, I think, because we're already at the bottom. So there has to be something that gives fans an opportunity that, Hey, you know, we're not good now, but if things click, we, we could be good because we have, you know, this young coordinator or, you know, these Juco players or, or, you know, some boomer bust talent on both sides of the ball. So it's just frustrating. And I, I think at full, you know, I think the game has kind of passed him a little bit. Uh, and I think the players are past him and he's talked about how it's so different, how this generation is so different too many times. And, um, I, th- I think guys like Saban or um, some of the other big name coaches can get away with that and, and complain about that, but they're still adapting and winning football games and doing what they're getting paid to do. Right. Um, but when you're losing and you're losing bad and it, it looks a lot worse. So he's either got to figure it out or bring in someone that's figured it out. Um, or, you know, you kind of have to find a replacement by 2022, I guess. Yeah. What? So when you're UConn in the AAC, you know, or UConn as an independent in what in what the future will be, you have to be able to and want to innovate. And I think that's another you know knock on Edsel is just that does he have that within him to try new things? And um, I think in terms of having Lashley for that year, having done for that year, and and what happened. Um, you know, the results were good, 
but those guys left also, you know, I think there's something to both of them, you know, maybe uh, their situations individually don't warrant concern, but okay. Rhett Lashley left for the job at SMU. Uh, SMU is in the same conference, maybe is able to pay slightly more, maybe is closer to kind of his home base uh, for him and, and all that kind of stuff. But again, he, he wanted to leave John Dunn. Uh, they gave him a, a Randy Edsel gave him a healthy raise out of his own pocket and Dunn still ended up leaving. Now it was to be tight ends coach for the New York jets NFL. Very good job, of course, but you know, there's also some benefit to, to running your own offense and, and why not, if you had a promising first year, see that out. So to me, while there's, something to be said for having those good offensive coordinators. They only stayed for a year each. And my concern, uh, and I don't think I'm reading too, too much into it, would be that maybe that what they were trying to do kind of clashed with Edsel's philosophy and beliefs. And they ended up just saying it's not worth it. You know, it's not worth it to try and drag this man into the 21st century strategically if he's not interested. Um, you know, something we saw earlier this in this season was him kind of get into a big argument with Mike Beaudry on the on the sidelines after a decision to punt. Um, I, you know, I don't remember the exact, but it was the Tulane game uh, to punt. You know, on from like their forty-two on fourth and something, and it's just like, look, man, we are we are so past that even being a like toss-up. Oh, hard to know what to do. Uh, you 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 go for those and. Um, I, I worry about Edsel's desire and willingness and ability to innovate, to do something new, because that's what UConn is going to need to do in order to succeed in the 20, in the year 2020 as an independent program. I think it's, it's too, too early still to, uh, break out the UConn should run the, the triple option talk, but (laughs) I think like if things fizzle out with, with Edsel in 2021, um, I'll, I'll have a discussion at length on the podcast about the triple option. We could bring Luke on too, maybe, and we could, we could cover it from all angles. Sure. Yeah. Jeff Munkin from army, get him over. Uh, maybe, maybe he'd want to, maybe he'd want to give it a shot. You never know. We'll take a quick ad break and then talk men's hoops and Yukon hockey. All right, folks, the UConn men's basketball team just got back from Madison Square Garden, a tough 57-54 loss to Indiana. Um, we'll break down the game in a little bit, but I think overall, still exciting to see the way the team is performing and competing. Uh, coming, out of, or coming out of the uh, tournament in Charleston, ending it with a big win over Miami and then comfortably taking care of business against Maine and Iona, 64-40, 80-62. Um, you know, don't sleep on those, on those wins. Um, we've, we've had the pleasure of – we've had the misfortune, sorry, of seeing UConn struggle uh, in those types of games that they should win. So for me, it was really promising to see them uh, just do what they, exactly what they were supposed to do and win by a lot. Um, and then they hop into Indiana. It's a uh, sloppy performance from both teams, particularly from UConn, 22 turnovers. Uh, you never like to see that. Um, but Akaka Kuk looked great. Uh, he looked like, you know, an amazing game-changing type of player. And 
we still feel pretty positive about the direction of this team overall. So I don't know. My, my, my feelings after the game Tuesday night was obviously very disappointed, but couldn't help but just still be comforted by the overall waves of positivity that we have with, with where things are going. Yeah. I, I think overall it was the, it was a frustrating loss, but I also think that if UConn play this Indiana team last year, they lose that game by 15, 20 points, maybe even more. Um, there's just major, major th- strides that this team has made since then, uh, even from the start of the season. And it's worth getting excited about. I mean, Carlton was great. A cook, a cook, uh, got hit with foul trouble a little bit but was incredible in flashes I read somewhere that I think UConn was plus 12 with with him on the floor and minus 16 with him off of it uh that just kind of shows the shot blocking ability rebounding ability and, and scoring ability that uh he brings to the table when he's on the floor um I also think that you know it was good to see that UConn was competitive even without uh Altry Gilbert and Christian Vital playing any semblance of good basketball. Um, they're, they were just off all night. They just weren't playing well. And James Booknight wasn't going either. So uh, when those three aren't hitting, it's going to be tough uh, for UConn to win any game against any team. Um, credit to them for sticking around and, and playing ugly and, and keeping competitive with Indiana. Uh, but those three in particular are going to need to step it up if UConn wants to you know, win out and, and play well in conference play. Uh, and, and have a shot at the NCAA tournament. Um, and a, another thing is that I think Tyler Polly forced a lot of shots late, but I think that's a factor of him not getting enough shots. Um, so when he touches the ball, he's trying to take any look he gets, whether it's a good one or not. Uh, he's one of the best shooters that UConn's had, and I think he might be the best shooter that UConn's had from a three-point perspective since uh, Niles Giffey. Niles so um, if he gets more wow. shots, I think that'll take pressure off Vital and Gilbert um, but we'll see how, how how things go going forward. Yeah, I think it's I I guess it's better to see them only beating themselves in games as compared to really getting beat. But at the same time, they're what three or four plays away from being undefeated right now. It's really been a pretty thin margin in every single game they've lost, and I think that common thread has been bad turnovers and bad guard play. And that's probably going to continue to be a theme the entire season because I think Josh Carlton's been a really consistent guy. Tyler Polly, I think you're going to get 12 points out of him every single night, regardless of how you get it. And then a guy like a cook, I think is just going to be getting better and better as the season goes on. But it's really just going to depend on what, what version of Christian Vital and Altariq Gilbert show up on any night. And I think that's, a recipe for a deep tournament run if they get hot at the right time. And it's also a recipe for missing the NCAA tournament if they continue to go cold in these big games. So it is a very, very big hit or miss situation. And so far in pretty much all the big games except Miami, it's been missed for those guys. And Dan Hurley's got to figure something out to try and get those two from struggling in big games because like I said, it's been just a handful of plays in all three games that have been the difference between winning and losing. And you can really look at both those two and just pick out a few plays from each of them that would have made the difference in ending up in the win column instead of the loss column. 
Yeah, I mean, I think before the season, we really thought like Vital and Gilbert would be counted on to be some majority of the scoring. And to some extent, it feels like they're still acting like that's the case, even though it's, I mean, you know, things that we did not anticipate happening was the emergence of, of course, Book Knight, um, someone like Brendan Adams making uh, this big of a jump, I think was, was a pretty big surprise. And then you never knew what, what we were going to expect or what we were going to get from a cook. Um, and again, if Polly would take a step forward, but all of those guys are really, um, they're not, they're not dependable yet. In fact, uh, I think all those guys I named did not have particularly great performances, uh, except for a cook, uh, in the last game, but, um, we know that they don't need to shoulder the scoring load. So I think what I'd like to see is just for them to stop kind of acting like it, you know, um, both Gilbert and Vital and, and actually Polly a little bit as, as I think you mentioned Madigan, but uh, going back to the guards, those guys, Vital and, and Gilbert um, really forced up a lot of shots and we, we know that we don't need that. So we've talked about how this team is deep. They have players who can step up and, to me, while it's, you know, it's certainly that stands out to see the types of uh, numbers and shooting performances. Gilbert was one for nine from the field. Vital was two of eight. Um, easy to kind of point to that, but I think there's, there's a scenario where that, that those guys post those same numbers and, you know, we get 10 to 12 from both Book Knight and, and Adams, uh, sorry, Book Knight and Adams. So, um, I, I think the, the most important thing or the thing that makes me feel still good, even though, of course, especially Tuesday night's performance was particularly sloppy um, with the turnovers and with the four shots, which, which had been a consistent theme, um, everything is, is in place where they, they can fix that. They, they can make that better. Um, and I think it's not even necessarily about playing time. It's just about... Um, kind of rewiring Vital and Gilbert in terms of what their approach to this season was. Again, I don't think I, I think they need to shoulder less of the scoring load than we thought before this season, and um, hopefully over time they can adjust to make that happen. Yeah, and I, I, Aman, I think some of that is the emergence of Josh Carlton, right? Like we, I think we saw all the you know articles that he was going to take the leap he put on muscle he looked improved he's more focused all the usual off-season stuff um but i think it actually happened and he has done well against the you know bottom third of the ken palm ratings opponents he's he's dominated them but he's always done that uh at least since you know the beginning of last year uh and now he's starting to have those performances against legitimately good teams like uh tuesday night he had 18 points five rebounds uh, in a block in 36 minutes. So Indiana is a legitimate team. They're 26th in the country in Ken Palm at the time, uh, just dropped down to 29 after the win, uh, which you hate to see, but um, his emergence has kind of changed things because, you know, as long as Vital and Gilbert have been here, they've been the only scoring options and there hasn't really been a, a solid post presence. So um, with him stepping up as a scorer, you, you need the ball in his hands because he, is UConn's most consistent option. And he's been that for 
probably since after the Charleston Classic, at least um, in, in regards to scoring. So it's good to see him develop. I, I do think, like you said, the talent Gilbert just kind of need to start seeing that, you know, players like Carlton Polly, a cook or, or book Knight, or even Sid Wilson who played well Tuesday night are capable of stepping up and doing more than they've done in the past. Uh, and, and that's just something that's going to happen with time. Also, I mean, Vital certainly didn't play great, but it was also just a, a weird game for him. Um, he, he looked a little out of control at times, which he can do, but I, I thought even for him, it was a little uncharacteristic. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And also he missed three free throws, which is more than he missed all season. Um, he's, one of the best free throw shooters that, that UConn has had. Um, so to see him miss was kind of weird. So I wonder if there was, you know, something external, whether it's, you know, finals week or he was sick or something like that, that we might not know about because um, he is known to play out of control at times, but that was one of the, you know, the crazier games that I think I've seen him play since, you know, maybe he was a freshman. So that was just something weird that I kind of picked up on, but overall I think this team's in really good shape and, you know, heading into conference play, I think they'll be able to continue to, to play well and, and make a run in the AAC tournament. For sure, yeah. And I think, Conley, you make a good point about how, especially the last two losses uh, to Indiana and Xavier, um, I mean, losing to Indiana by three and then losing to Xavier by one in double overtime, uh, right? We're so close to grabbing two just just – season-defining wins uh, that while it's disappointing, um, it's, it's just, you know, maintain perspective and just remember where we were with this team two years ago, even last year. Uh, so clearly progress is being made. I do want to bring up <laughs> the team that currently owns the largest victory over UConn this season, St. Joseph's, uh, currently ranked a healthy 259th in Ken Palm. So that's, um, for those keeping track at home, by by Ken Palm, the second worst team UConn has played all season, beat UConn by nine. Okay, whatever. Uh, maybe they're a decent A10 team. Well, since then, St. Joseph's has lost eight straight to Loyola Chicago, Florida, Missouri State, Towson, St. Francis, Lafayette, Villanova, and then a 50 50- Seven point loss, sorry, 47 point loss to Temple. Uh, so that is not going to be good on the old, the old tournament resume. I don't know what to make of that, that uh, St. Joe's somehow has the largest victory over UConn. And, you know, if UConn's a bubble team, it's, it's really that <laughs> that's going to keep, that's going to be the eyesore on UConn's resume. Yeah, and that's why it hurts not to get these wins over either Xavier or Indiana because at least get either of these two wins would have been a really nice, I, not a great balance, but it would have at least helped mitigate that St. Joe's loss. I guess what you can hope for is maybe the committee takes into account that James Booknight didn't play in that game if he really explodes the rest of the season, but I think he'd really have to be like UConn's leading scorer for that to hold significant weight. Yeah, and I I think the St. Joe's loss is just one of those weird, like, what the heck happened um, losses. Um, And it's not great to have, but there's, I guess there's still hope that St. Joe's can turn it around. Uh, They also played Florida close, Amon, too. 
uh, in that loss at the Charleston Classic. They only lost by eight. So I think I remember after that we were we were kind of saying like you know maybe maybe this loss isn't as bad as we thought. Uh, right now it is, but they still have. I was looking. They have six or seven games against the Ken Palm top 100 in the next like six weeks. So um, if they win even one of those somehow, uh, it, it could balance things out. So it's still a bad loss and it's definitely going to be that in that bad loss column on the, uh, t- the old tournament resume. But I guess the only thing we can do going forward is to just root for St. Joe's and hope they uh, finish strong in the A-10. So keep flapping those wings. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, again, just be excited that we're even talking about our tournament resume and being 100% serious about it, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what, especially with both Xavier and Indiana, there kind of were moments where you thought, okay, UConn's got this. Um, I mean, especially Xavier winning, they were winning kind of deep into the second half. But Indiana, Early on, it looked like you know UConn was really setting up to to take over that game and and just go ahead and win comfortably, and then co- it absolutely collapsed at the end of the second half. It was a complete shock, I think, to be trailing by five uh, at, at the half, given how the game started, and then they really never regained their composure across the second half. It felt like so. Um, again, a lot to work on for these guys, but um, they'll have some time to work on it. They are playing something called St. Peter's uh, next Wednesday. They'll get New Hampshire, who is uh, uh, not very good either, and uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology. So that's their kind of post-finals, rest of their December schedule before a big meeting on New Year's Day at Cincinnati. So that's their next big test. If we're looking ahead on the schedule, the old schedule um, right after that, they'll be at South Florida who also may be a decent team, but um, you know, I think something else that's just worth talking about is um, UConn's going to be a competitive team in the AAC this year, which, Hey, that would be a fun first. That would be such a nice middle finger to the conference to go out on to win the conference. It would be just wonderful after, all we've heard from other fans in the conference about, oh, it doesn't even matter that UConn's leaving because they aren't even good in basketball anymore. To just kind of step on them, uh, point up at our rafters and be like, yeah, no, this is our conference when we want it to be. So uh, go back off to your little mid-major once we leave. We're going to go join the actual basketball schools. That would be very enjoyable. That would be good. I want to start even smaller. I just want to see a win at Tulsa. Uh, it's, it's like. It's one of the most frustrating things I've ever seen. Uh, drives me nuts. Just want to see a road win at Tulsa. Honestly, if that happens, I don't even really care how the rest of the season goes. I just want to kind of exercise those demons, head into the Big East next year, clean slate. Yes, these are, these are very tough times for the people who so badly wanted to define UConn men's basketball by 2016, 2017, and 2018. Very, very tough times for those people. Um, who also weren't sure if the Big East was going to pay off, and we see uh, already recruiting wins. So, um, yeah. Uh, so that's that's men's basketball. Again, we feel we feel wonderful, uh, and someone else is doing pretty well these days after a, a bit of a rocky start to their season is the Ice Bus. So UConn men's hockey ended their uh, 
first half of the season on very much of a high note. Conley, can you give us the, the deets on what happened there? So they started out the season kind of slow. Uh, tied a game to Sacred Heart, giving up a goal in the last couple seconds. Lost to Army and RPI. Then had a week off and came back and really kind of looked like they might have turned a corner against RPI on the road. But then the next weekend against Merrimack kind of took that step back. And then just pick your favorite adjective. They got blasted. They got destroyed. They got embarrassed by Boston College, losing by a combined score of 11-1. to And at least in the home game, from the time the puck dropped, UConn was losing. There was... The BC was skating harder. They were connecting passes better. They were just better. But that BC series has shown to actually be a pretty big turning point in the season because after that, they split with UMass Lowell. They tied at home, and then they beat them on the road. And in both games, UConn totally outplayed them. Then they tied with Providence the next Friday and then lost on the road when they were pretty solidly outmanned. But then since then, they've won four in a row, their second longest win streak uh, since they've joined Hockey East. It's the first time in Hockey East history that they've swept two series in a row. They're above 500 at the uh, midseason break for the first time in Hockey East. So things are definitely looking up. It's just kind of tough that now the first half hits because they're playing so well and it's kind of tough to lose all that momentum. and. Um, just kind of go into the break having that chemistry kind of dissipate for the next few weeks. Luckily, they're going to pick things up up in Dartmouth against St. Lawrence, who is one of the worst teams in the country. They just played one of the worst teams in the country in Vermont, won both those games, which is important because you need to win the games that uh, you that you can win. And they did that against Vermont. So they need to win this one against St. Lawrence because – they are at the bottom of the pairwise standings. I think they're 66 out of 68. They're really bad. So that would be a really good way to get the second half going and hopefully get everything flowing again. And I, you don't want to see it, but it would be, it is the perfect game to come back from because if the team does kind of start off a little groggy or a little slow, they do have some room for error with such a bad team. And to tell us a little bit more about what's going on with this hockey season, we were very thrilled to be joined by the men's hockey head coach, Mike Cavanaugh. Coach, uh, you guys just ended your first half on a four-game winning streak, back-to-back series sweeps for the first time in the program's hockey's history. How would you rate your season to this point so far? Well, certainly the last month of the season uh, has been – uh, we've probably we've played our best hockey, and I think that we're playing to our potential. I think early in the season, <clears throat> we um, we played okay the first four games, uh, you know, not great. And then again, we thought you know we had a week, couple weeks off, and we kind of instituted some different systems. Uh, thought we came back out uh, after that little break played really well against RPI and then <clears throat> okay against Merrimack and not very well against BC. But after that BC weekend, I think we've turned it around and, and as I said, played to our potential and played our best hockey. What did you see from the guys themselves after that BC weekend that you said you kind of turned it around? Was 
there a change in their mentality at all and in their mindset going into the next weekend against UMass Lowell? Well, I think we have a very skilled team. You know, we, we have uh, a lot of players with high-end skill. And I think we were relying too much on our skill and not our will. And, and I think the players realized, hey, if we don't become a blue-collar team and grind uh, and make stuff happen more with our feet instead of relying on our hands, we're not going to be very good. And I think that's what we were able to do. We were able to get the win to lose puck, you know, lose puck races. We're winning those races. We're winning those battles. And uh, to do that, you have to skate and you have to rely on your feet. And I think that's what our players really started to do and focus on winning those battles and then letting the skill take over after that. Is having that blue collar style of play, like you mentioned, something that you want to be attending to the program? Or do you just think that's something that kind of fits this team and what they need right now? No, I think it's always been part of our DNA uh, since I've been here. And I think that's why we've been successful. I think, you know, we haven't had always the most skilled team. So if we didn't compete extremely hard and win battles, we didn't have a chance to be in the game. So from the outset, we've always had a team that competes very hard. And as of late, because of the quality of player that we're getting, we're getting a, a really high-skilled player. I mean, never in the school's history have there been two, <clears throat> this many draft picks on one team and high draft picks. Uh, so, which is great because the skill level is getting better and you need that to compete for championships. But you can never lose sight of the fact that it's got to be a blue-collar work ethic first. With having that many skilled players, a lot of them come from across the Atlantic in the Czech Republic, Russia. Was that kind of your plan when you took over the UConn job in 2013 was to get those players that might be overlooked by bigger programs? Or is that something that kind of came about once you got here, started recruiting and kind of got a better feel for what the landscape was going to be for you guys? Yeah, that wasn't <clears throat> the plan. Naturally, the plan was to come in and keep the best Connecticut kids, you know, coming to UConn. When I was at BC, uh, I recruited so many great Connecticut players to go to Boston College. And I was like, if we can keep those kids at UConn, uh, we're going to be pretty good. But that wasn't the case. Um, we were losing – you know, local kids and New England kids uh, to lesser scholarships than we were offering them. So we had to find a way to get skill here to the program. And uh, that was the avenue that we kind of took. It was kind of organic, you know, uh, how it happened. But at the same token, you know, we've made some pretty good inroads in Western Canada and Cale Howarth and Johnny Evans and Carter Turnbull and Carter Berger, you know, those are all high-end Western Canadian players. So not every kid on our team is a, um, you know, European. So you mentioned not getting those Connecticut players, but you guys have finally gotten one in Nick Capone, the top right. Connecticut player to come here, excluding Tage, because he wasn't really from here. So how important is it to get him on – signed up for the program and how much do you think that's going to affect how you guys recruit Connecticut kids going forward? 
Well, it's certainly going to help. It was very important to get him. He is a high-profile Connecticut kid. And even <clears throat> I'm really excited about the defenseman John Spetz we have. He's a New Jersey kid. So, you know, kind of our our model and our recruiting philosophy is we don't want a kid to have to drive by UConn to go to another hockey school. And he's a he's a very good defenseman in the USHL. So to get both of those players, which kids we were not getting, uh, I think bodes well for the future. So what did you think in the past has prevented you guys from getting those successful Connecticut players? Is it been the facilities, the lack of an on-campus rink? Has it been that you're just a new program to Hockey East? Well, I think it's both of those things. I think it's uh, certainly our facilities are not you know, on par with uh, – they're not on par with some prep schools. I mean – it, it is what it is. Our, our facilities are not on par with other schools that we recruit against. All right. But also there's, there's no hockey East tradition at the school. It, you know, they've never had a tradition, hockey East tradition, winning tradition. They have new to the league. So that's also a very hard thing, you know, to overcome. Uh, you know, when I went to BC, it's six losing seasons, you know, which is hard to believe, but in the, early nineties, they were not very good. However, they had such a long storied history and tradition, you know, and coupled with great facilities, it didn't take long to turn that around. With that, speaking of facilities, there's been plans released for a new on-campus hockey rink. Regardless of the situation kind of surrounding that, how important do you think it's going to be for you guys to have that facility and be able to show it to recruits, tell recruits that you have it, and even just be able to play games on campus so that essentially you don't have to go on the road for every single game. I think it's very important, but right now I'm at the point where um, it's more important for our current players. Our players deserve better. Um, I think they've made a commitment uh, to come to UConn uh, with the you know, the talk of a new rink, which was supposed to happen my third year here. And, you know, they've been, now I've never promised a kid they were going to play in a new rink, but it's out there and they report it in the newspaper that a rink's going to get built. It's just time for our current players who have made that commitment to come to UConn. They bleed blue. They want to be part of, you know, the first Hockey East championship at UConn. It's time that they, they deserve a facility that's worthy of a Division One college athlete. Does that almost feed into the blue-collar mentality that you guys have where it's going to be harder for these guys than it is at every other hockey school because of the facilities, because of all that and what they're dealing with? Yeah, we try not to, to go there. I think it's more um, – we just want that to be, regardless of whether we have a brand-new spanking – state-of-the-art facility we still have to have that blue-collar work ethic I think you know if you look at the best teams around the NHL uh, the Boston Bruins being one of them right now they're known for a, you know the big bad Bruins blue-collar work ethic they have high-end skilled players but those guys compete and work hard and I think any winning organization has that as part of their uh, fabric Speaking of the pros, you guys uh, the past few years have had a handful of guys start moving into the pro ranks. 
Obviously, Tage Thompson made his NHL debut. He's been back and forth between the NHL and AHL. Max Latunov, Adam Huska, <laughs> Miles Gendron. How good is it to be seeing guys that played for UConn in hockey's were some of the first hockey's guys here to finally start cracking into those pro ranks? Well, it's great. I think that was uh, that's part of the goal when you recruit a kid. You know, we want to uh, we want to graduate our players. We want to uh, make them better, make them better men, and we want them to compete for trophies, and at the end, help them succeed to get to where they want to go in life, whether that's working on Wall Street or working in the NHL. And a lot of those players have the aspirations to play in the NHL, and to see some of them succeed and reach those goals, it's very rewarding. Speaking of moving on past collegiate careers, when you finished your playing career. Uh, Bowden, you went over to London for a year and were a player and coach over there? Correct, yes. What was that experience yeah. like playing hockey in a country that's not exactly known for hockey? <clears throat> no, um, it wasn't known for hockey. Uh, but I will say I loved, uh, I loved being over there. It was, it was a terrific experience. It made me realize that coaching was something I wanted to do. It, it was tough to do while you're playing, I will say that, but uh, it really made me realize that, hey, this was a passion of mine, and it was something I wanted to continue to um, do once I was done playing. Uh, the playing part was fun. It was, you know, there were only, I think, two imports allowed per team. So as you can imagine, it's the imports would cancel each other out, and it's basically whoever had the best English players was going to you know, uh, be a successful win, win games. But overall, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. How did you then get into coaching when you came back to the U.S.? What made you want to come back to the U.S. after that? And how did you find your way in somewhere? Well, my dad was a, a football coach, high school football coach, and I played for him. So it was kind of always in my blood. And... um I thought I wanted to be a football coach, but I actually tried that at my alma mater, and um, I I thought it was okay. Um, I just uh, I said, you know, I want to try hockey as well, and then I went out and worked for Jerry York as a graduate assistant out at Bowling Green, and then really, really enjoyed my time there working for him, and then went to Dartmouth College for two years. He helped me get a job at Dartmouth. That was, uh, <clears throat> at the time, the program was struggling, but it was such a great experience for me because uh, when you're recruiting at an Ivy League school, you have to recruit, you know, 50 kids to yield four. Uh, there's so many different variables, whether it's academics and uh, financially. Uh, it, it's just so many things that you have to uh, get by to get a kid to come to your school. So it really helped me cut my teeth in recruiting and uh, expand my network. And then Jerry's uh, second year at BC, he brought me into at BC, and I was there for 18 years and really learned how to win at Division One college level there. Did you, when you were at Bowling Green with Jerry, did you ever have any idea of the success that he would go on to have in his future? Were there any inklings that you saw of that? Well, he had already won a national championship out there, 
um, and had a lot of success out there. So, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at him then as a successful coach. Did I realize he was going to become the uh, Gino Ariema or, you know, John Wooden of college hockey? No, I, I didn't know that at the time. Uh, I didn't even know that when I got to BC. But over time, and the longer I spent time with him, you know, I realized what a special guy he was. Then let's bring this back to you, Cotton. When did you first know that you wanted to become a head coach and how did the process of becoming the UConn coach all come together? Um, I, uh, I always wanted to be a head coach. I had applied for a lot of jobs. Um, and quite frankly, it was frustrating because, you know, every job you'd apply for, like a lot of people would say, well, it's easy to win at BC. It's going to be hard. To, how can you win here? And, I tried to explain to him, it's not easy to win at BC, you know, um, it's just that, uh, is it easy to win at Wisconsin? Is it easy to win at Michigan? Is it easy to win at North Dakota? Like, th is it easy to win at BU? I mean, your, your competition is just a little bit different, but it's still very hard uh, to win. Um, so I was getting frustrated with the process. And in fact, I didn't even apply for the UConn job, but a friend of mine who was on the panel um brought my name up and I, at the time ward manual uh said i bet well he hasn't even applied for the job and i guess my friend convinced him to give me a call and ward called me we had a great conversation and asked me if i would apply and i said yeah i will and then i came down probably two or three days later and met with him uh i always thought connecticut would be a a great fit for hockey east i did uh you know, because they were in the Big East, I was certainly familiar with the school uh, because they would compete against Boston College for so many years in basketball and other sports. And I saw how successful their other sports were. So I knew that um, they would be a, a great fit for Hockey East and with new facilities and commitment behind the program. I didn't think there would be any question uh, they would be successful in Hockey East. Uh, Coach, it's been six years now at, at UConn. What has been most surprising to you over the course of your tenure uh, in stores? Surprising as far as um, hockey or just uh, yeah. the school? Yeah, uh, you know, either the, the experience within the school, the athletic department, and, and then, of course, yeah, on, on the uh, hockey front as well, sure. Well, when I first um, came here, I didn't realize – you know, like the, the facilities at, at UConn are amazing. And it's, it's really, um, it's funny. When you're in Boston, you're in a bubble. Like you don't, it's all pro sports and it's, you know, it's Boston College, it's Beanpot Schools. Uh, you don't even, like, I didn't realize how close UConn was. When I, got, when I came down for my interview, I was here about an hour and a half early. I thought it was two and a half hours away from Boston. Um, I, I never realized how close the school was to, to Boston. It took me like an hour and 15 minutes to get there. Um, so <clears throat> I didn't just realize the magnitude of how important athletics were to the, to the university. And then when I got here, the only other time I had been to the UConn campus was in 1988 when we played against UConn. 
And uh, when I was at Bowdoin, because UConn was in Division Three then in hockey, uh, we dressed in the field house, got on the bus, we with our skates and sticks and wow. put our skates on in a warming hut and played in the outdoor rink. Um, but I came in at night. I had no feel for the campus. I've just been uh, amazed at it's not, I don't think, your, your stereotypical state school campus because when I was at Bowling Green or St. Cloud State or um, some other schools, you just I had this, you know, picture of what a state school looks like. And UConn to me was just a big prep school. It was a huge, the buildings had great New England style architecture. Uh, I, I've just been just blown away by the campus and uh, the school. And it keeps getting better every year I'm here, whether it's the building of the stores center or the new recplex. Uh, it's just every year the campus just keeps getting better and better. Uh, and I'm excited to see when we get the new baseball field and so, uh you know, soccer fields and, and hopefully someday a brand new rink, it's only going to add to what the university has to offer. And along those lines, um, and just in terms of something else that's new, um, <clears throat> not necessarily on campus, but this year for the first time, there's going to be a big tournament for the Connecticut hockey teams. So, you know, what right. does the Connecticut ice tournament mean for you? And, and, you know, what makes you really excited to have that this year? Well, it's something that I've been clamoring for for a long time. Uh, I saw what the Beanpot did for the city of Boston and how important it made college hockey and relevant in that city. Uh, and there's no reason why I don't think this tournament can galvanize our entire state around the sport of hockey for a weekend. And it's, real, it's the only sport, coll collegiate sport in the state where you have four Division I teams that can compete equitable, you know, on, on the same level uh, for a tournament. You can't do it in any other sport. So I think it's really unique to this state. Uh, and my biggest concern, though, with it is that we continue to do it year after year. I just hope it's not uh, a flash-in-the-pan type tournament. I know we're committed to do it for two years, but – you know, I think there should be a 10-year, 20-year commitment to play in this tournament every year. Even though it's a non-conference tournament, how important is it, in your opinion, to not just play well in it, but go out and try and win it? Well, any tournament. We're going up to Dartmouth, and I think it's very important that we win that tournament. Um, so anytime you're playing for a trophy, and that's one of the staples of our program, we want to win it. Um, so from that standpoint, it's very important. Uh, but also, I think, you know, recruiting-wise, I think that's the other thing. So many kids grow up in Boston wanting to play in the bean pot, dreaming to play in the bean pot. I think if we're able to keep this tournament going, sustain it, and grow it over the next eight to ten years, you're going to see the benefits of this tournament in the recruiting process. You'll see many more kids in Connecticut wanting to play for a Connecticut school instead of leaving the state. What, what have been the hangups um, in terms of getting this done? You know, you mentioned you've been, you know, clamoring for it for a while. And um, even, even now it's not in kind of a permanent long-term state. So what are the things keeping that from happening? You know, I know it's not the university of Connecticut. I know that. So 
we we've agreed to play it you know wherever they want to play it we've agreed to play it i can't speak for the other schools but clearly there's been some issues with some of the other schools on, on why the tournament hasn't been played but the university of connecticut has always supported that idea and wanted to play in the event it's in bridgeport this year what's your vision personally for where the tournament should be held? Do you think it should be like the bean pot, which is at the TD garden every year where it should be in Bridgeport every year, or would you like to see it move around? I know there have been some suggestions to float it between all the schools home ranks, or do you think it should stay in those big arenas that we have? I think it should stay in the big arenas. I think it should be played either in Bridgeport or Hartford every year. Um, you know, if Mohegan Sun had the ability to host the tournament, that might be a great place to host it. But uh, it's got to be an event uh, that you're going to. A, I'm envisioning this to be eight, 9,000 people that want to come to this event every year. So if that's the case, it's got to be played in Bridgeport and at Hartford. Uh, Coach, I think we're, we're heading towards the end of our final questions. But just um, thinking about the trajectory of, of your program, um, you're, you're building and building year over year. It's obviously a very competitive um, conference. Uh, how do you see the, the timeline for UConn being, you know, one of those, uh, like, like you said earlier, the kind of the potential that it has to be, uh, you know, a standout program the way it is, the way it is in some other sports? Um, <clears throat> hey, I mean, my timeline <laughs> this March. Uh, that's what I'm – like I, I, I've said all along, um, I don't want, I don't want maybe the, the lack of facilities or the lack of tradition to pigeonhole us to what type of program we have to be. I, I want to be, you know, the very best we can be in Hockey East. And we've got to go out and do a good job of recruiting players to believe in the same vision we have. Um, that being said, if you want to be a perennial contender in the league, you have to upgrade the facilities. You have to make a commitment to fund the program like other, other programs in the league are funded. It's just, I mean, that's just reality. If you're going to go into the SEC in football and you're not going to be on par with LSU, Alabama, Georgia, or Auburn, right? If you, then you're not going to compete with those schools. It's very, very simple. Um, so, you know, it's a reason why, uh, you know, that they build nice facilities because they matter. All right. I mean, if, I've said this all along and I'd ask you to this. If I said to you, you can live in this house, which is a hundred thousand dollars, or you can live in this house, which is a million dollars, and it's not going to cost you a penny for either one. Which one do you want? Tough one. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to take the million. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it is what it is, right? You're an 18 year old kid, especially. So when you're going somewhere and you're seeing a million dollar home and you're going to see another one, that's a hundred thousand dollar home. You're going to take the million dollar home if it's not going to cost you a nickel. So uh, that's just reality of it. But with that being said, you know, our goals of this year are to compete for a Hockey East championship, and that hasn't changed. And we're going to do everything in our power to compete for that, for that trophy. So you just wrapped up uh, the weekend series, and then you have three weeks off uh, before 
you uh, have a tournament up in New Hampshire. Do you ever have concern around the holiday season that, you know, uh, kid, the players come back out of focus, out of shape, or what have you? How do you kind of make sure that these high-level athletes maintain uh, even though they're off for three weeks? You know, I used to, but the players today, uh, the, the one area where college sports has changed so much, especially in my 30 years, is that in the old days, yeah, you would go home, you wouldn't skate, you'd uh, go to holiday parties, you'd relax and have fun and sit on the couch. Um, the, the athletes today are so, uh, they watch what they eat, their fitness is so important to them that really in the last, especially the last five or six years, it hasn't been a concern of mine as much as it used to be. Uh, they're all so driven. And I don't know whether it's just because of where the money and sports has gone and, you know, they aspire to be NHL players or professional athletes and they know that they have to be in great shape and physical condition to get there, that they really don't take time off. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't have a problem if one kid took a week off, you know, and didn't skate for a week just to kind of recharge. Um, because they are in such great shape right now that even taking a week off of skating, I don't think would hurt them, you know, but I, I, none of, very rarely, very few of our kids would even think of doing that. So um, it, it's not as much a concern as it used to be. Great. So yeah, you'll be back in action December 28th, 29th, and then back at the Excel center Friday, January 3rd. Um, last question, just what, you know, what's your, um, message to UConn fans, students who maybe haven't checked out a game yet this year uh, for what they can expect to see across the second half of the season? Yeah, you know, I know it's difficult as a student to get on a bus and get down to the XL Center, um, but I'm urging you, please, you know, make the effort to do it. We've got some great games coming up in the second half. Uh, we have a team worth watching. We have some really talented players that. Uh, give everything they have when they compete and they put the UConn jersey on. They're worth coming out to watch. we got an exciting team. Uh, we're hopefully going to be competing for home ice uh, and, and at the end of the season. And it <clears throat> really, really helps. I don't know what the stat is. I'm not positive on this. You could look it up, Dan. But anytime we've had 7,000 people or more in the building, and it's probably been five or six times, I think we've won every game. Um, so I, it, it matters to us that, that home crowd definitely is a, like a seventh player for us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, hope, hope you enjoy, uh, the, the finals week and your holiday season. All right. Same to you guys. Enjoy the holidays. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening. Shout out Scott Oberg. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year Do you guys want to guess what the St. Peter's mascot is? Um, I did a I, genuine yeah. triple take uh, uh, when I saw it.
close, actually. <laughs> I feel like I know this because they're in the are, same conference as Iona. Are they're D one? Like, I've like legitimately yeah. never heard of this university before. Yeah, they're in the same conference as Iona, oh, which wow. Iona is not even a D one school, basically. So. No, Iona's D one. Iona's legit. No, they're not. Uh, tell us. I can't think of it. The Peacocks. <laughs> I kind of owns actually. Wait, what's their logo? Their hashtag. The peacock. Their hashtag is strut your pride. Oh my god. <laughs> should be like go Cox or something like that. You <laughs> should just like lean all the way into it. Well, isn't that what South Carolina is? Go Cox. That, that yeah. is exactly what they do. And it's awesome. It's something. That is a peacock. That is a peacock. Wow. What I I want I wish I was in that room when they decided that. Yeah, what's the connection? It probably was oh. like five years ago. They probably are a recent D one. No, I don't know. There's probably no way because the the women's team is called the Peahens, so there's no <laughs> way. There's literally no way that there's like a gendered a gendered sports nickname that just got created oh, in 2000. Man. You know. 15 or whatever they have also made the ncaa tournament in uh 1991 and they made the nit in 1957 oh well, oh, well that's when it was good so they yeah, were they're the, the nit basketball powerhouse it used to be more prestigious everyone knows wait they yeah. won the cit in uh in 2017 oh okay. damn damn okay all right the most that's that's, that's pit territory that's better than Maine. <laughs> I think. I'll, re- uh, I'll reach out to the to the university. Even better. Even Get a statement. <laughs> Get a statement <laughs> on peahens. That's awful. It's so bad. <laughs> so bad. If I was a female I don't athlete, think I would not want would to complain. play on peahens. Right. They had a football team up to 2006. I don't think it's anyone would complain f- if they just called the women's teams the Peacocks, too. Like I don't know if anyone knows. Like there's a there's a gendered version of peacocks. I didn't know. I had no idea. Obviously. Oh, do we want gears? Do we want gear? Want peacocks gear? 